you, deserving listeners. We've had podcast episodes before in which we talked about paraphilias in which people um, exhibit um, preference or compulsions for uh, sadomasochism or voyeurism or exhibitionism, other kinds of, and then it can get a little darker, like wanting to actually harm other people while having sex. And we talked about them in detail, but what we didn't get to is perhaps why we evolved these things because, um, you know, it's hard to nail that down, but I thought we would have Yuval Laor on the podcast since he is an expert on these sorts of things. Welcome to the podcast, Yuval. Thank you for having me. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Yuval, uh, can you introduce yourself, please? Uh, yes, I'm Yuval Laor. I live in Colorado, in Boulder, and uh, I have a PhD in culture studies, uh, which I wrote about the evolution of the capacity for fervor and uh, awe and religious conversion. And right now I'm turning that into a book. So, What will the book be called? Well, the, the current title is either The Infatuated Primate or The Awe-Inspired Primate. So. The episode today um, is about the sexual perverted primate. So help us understand that. Uh, well, so uh, we need to situate that within um, uh, context. So let me start by uh, uh, introducing uh, uh, a thing called sexual imprinting, which is in, in animals, primarily we see it in birds, but it probably exists in, in many other, in many mammals as well. And sexual imprinting, like other types of in, imprinting, means that there is a sensitive period in development when the bird will uh, uh, decide, or, you know, it's not that it's conscious, but the bird will determine who it is that she wants or he wants to have sex with. Yeah, it's similar to the more well-known phenomenon of some birds imprinting on who is their mother that they're going to follow around. So yeah, I think most people know that if you are there at a particular time for a young bird and you're giving food and you're giving warmth and attention, then that bird will imprint on you and believe that you're the bird's mother or, you know, some version of that and will follow you around just like they would follow around their mother of the same species. Yeah. So or saying that there's a similar process for sexual preference. Yes. So if you take an egg of one species and you put it into the nest of another species, there are uh, certain species that will uh, as they grow up, they will become sexually interested in the species that was adopted them. So that's the mother and siblings that that uh, raised them, probably a father as well, um, and not be imprinted on their own species. Interesting. Yes. Uh, and it it uh, another example of imprinting that that people are familiar with is phobias. So. You have a tendency for a phobia, but then around age five, if you're scared of spiders, you'll become arachnophobic. If you're scared of heights, you'll become, right? So right. it is a, a strange combination of nature and nurture. It's neither nature nor nurture. It is a nature program that says, take information from the environment and incorporate that. 
Right. And it makes sense, right? Because it's a more flexible system that allows a organism to adapt to the reality of their life once being born rather than being rigidly um, programmed, so to speak, to one instinct. Yeah. Well, sometimes, yeah. So this is, would be a, a selection for plasticity. In this case, a very specific type of plasticity. But sometimes you don't want it, right? So the, the cuckoo who is raised in, in, a, in another nest, you don't want the cuckoo to be imprinted on its adoptive family, but to on other cuckoos, right? Right. So sometimes it's, it's adaptive and sometimes it's not. Yeah. It's fine for it to be raised by the other birds, but at, in order to reproduce, it has to be yeah. essentially, you know, um, driven towards other cuckoos. Yeah. Now, today they do say that the mother cuckoo visits with the, the, the baby uh, periodically. So it's, it's more complicated. But um, uh, it seems like uh, we have sexual imprinting in humans. And uh, so the, I'm, I'm not the first one to say this. The first one to say this is uh, a woman called Hannah Aronson. And she wrote her PhD about this. And um, she also wrote uh, a chapter in a book called um, Maladaptive, Mal- Maladapting Minds. So... Um, uh, but I, there, there are certain certain things that that it is that I will add that she doesn't mention. So one of those things is that uh, we notice um, an, a huge increase in sexual variability around the 18th century, right? Okay. So the Marquis de Sade um, is right late in the 18th century, and <clears throat> In Western culture, yeah. Yeah, only in the West. Yeah. Um, maybe Japan, but I'm not sure what's going on there. But before that, we don't really see, I mean, there are sort of strange anecdotes in the ancient world of, you know, uh, uh, people having sex with animals. But, you know, the Kama Sutra is very different than the Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah. Right? So it seems like the increase in variability in sexuality coincided when humans started hiding sexuality from children and when privacy became a thing. Interesting. I thought about that. Yeah, it makes sense. Yes. So normally, forever, uh, kids always saw people having sex around them, right? And privacy is surprisingly recent. Yeah, because in the, you know, 99.9% of people lived in very small homes that didn't afford different rooms for different people and there would be 12 children and you couldn't avoid at least occasionally viewing or hearing or having some awareness of the way that your parents, you know, when your parents were having sex and the way they were or your older siblings or, or maybe even just other people in the village or something you would, there was just a lot less privacy, right? Uh, yeah, and actually there was no privacy, and there was no concept of privacy, really, um, for for the masses. If you go to Versailles, for example, the hallway goes through the rooms. There is no, you can't, the, the, the rooms are connected in a way that to, you have to walk through the rooms because they, they don't need privacy. Right. Um, 
and they, they don't think about it. But once you have privacy and once you start hiding sexuality from children, which you know accelerates it, it's maybe among aristocrats in the 18th century, which is the Marquis de Sade, but uh, 19th and 20th century becomes more and more common, of course, in the West. Why did, why did they start doing that? So the, that's uh, part of Victorian uh, morality, and it, is a, it, it comes with a certain interpretation of Christianity about children being pure, right? Children sometimes are, are good, sometimes are bad, and they were thinking of sexuality as something bad, which also they change back and forth. But um, there was a, a, a coinciding of seeing children as good and sexuality as bad, and so they needed to protect children from sexuality. That's I'm not an expert on this history, but that's my understanding. But the Victorian cultural movement, shall we say, is a well-known cultural phenomenon in the West. Yes, and they stopped talking about sexuality altogether, right? yeah. Not especially with children, but in polite company. Right. So um, as coinciding with the hiding of sexuality from children, children do not um, are not able to be imprinted on the, the sexual act, right? Meaning, meaning I mean, that we evolved to have plasticity around being imprinted by seeing other people have sex. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And, or even knowing about sex. I mean, there are kids today who do not know. I mean, there are that do not know what the genitals of the opposite sex look like until they're, you know, late teens. Right. It's, um, so you, you obviously would not be able to imprint on that if you're, uh, a sensitive period is, you know, four, five, six, seven, which is, Right. Now, there are reasons to believe that um, uh, around age six, something happens regarding sexual imprinting, because when you have, uh, when you set up a couple to marry each other, you know, an arranged marriage, and you meet the husband and the wife when they're six-year-olds, they will not be attracted to each other. Right. When they're eight-year-old, nine-year-old, they, they will, or they, they might, right? Yeah. But before that, it seems like they would treat each other like siblings. So they will not be sexually uh, attracted. But it seems around age six or something around there, something regarding that kind of sexual imprinting happens. So right. it could be that uh, other, other types of sexual imprinting. And I'm going to talk about three or two or three separate imprintings that take place. So, uh, first of all, and this might or might not have anything to do with imprinting, but that's sexual orientation, right? Yeah. So, we know that if identical twins, um, one of them is homosexual, the chance that the other one would be homosexual is 50%. Right. So, that's a lot bigger than random, but also not 100%. So, it could be that there is some element of imprinting, but it's probably, probably not. Yeah. No, the other two types of imprinting is, uh, one of them is what is the sexual act, right? What do you want to do with a member of the opposite sex or the same sex? Right. And um, that is where you get all the paraphilia, right? Yeah. And it's a, a, a huge variety, <laughs> right? Yeah, and I should say that 
I, in my episodes on paraphilia, the whole concept is problematic in my view, particularly as it's laid out in the DSM-5, because there are some things that most of us can decide, uh, uh, most of us would agree, that should be identified as pathology, like the pleasure in harming other people while having sex, which leads Mm -hmm. people to wanting to rape people to uh, have their sexual needs met. This is harmful, it's obvious, and it's, it's, we could deem it as pathological, particularly if it's something that they can't really control or um, can't mm-hmm. be a, um, adjust to. And, but in, in the same chapter, there are other things like, um, like sadomasochism, for example. No, I'm trying to remember. What, there's like nine of them I'm trying to remember. I should, have, I should have read up on it, but do you know the, one, the paraphilias that are in the DSM? Not the DSM. I have here a book called uh, Who's Been Sleeping in Your Head? Uh, the Secret World of Sexual Fantasies by Brett Carr, okay. K-A-H-R, where she does a big survey. Okay. Um, so I can read you from the, the table of contents. Um, so he has uh, three, uh, you know, uh, uh, orgies. Okay. Uh, there's cheating, right? There's people who want to cheat or want to be cheated on. Yeah. There's fantasies of celebrities. Um, there's exhibitionism, uh, fetishism, transvestism, homeovor. Uh, right, right. So transvestism, yeah. right? That's uh-huh. just dressing up as um, a uh, in a way that, culturally speaking, is expressive of, of another gender. Mm-hmm. And uh, to to call that, uh, you know, pathological is, I think highly problematic but isn't in the dsm i thought that it's only uh, uh described as a problem if someone has uh um ha- has a problem with it if someone yeah. sees it as a problem well yeah exactly well the reason why it's a problem is because society sees it as a problem yeah. um, you know the fact that i dress up quote unquote as a masculine person um there i don't have a problem with that because no one bullies me or ridicules me or tries to kill me or thinks I'm a bad person because I'm dressing quote unquote in the cultural decidedly way that men are supposed to dress. So of course, if I dressed as a woman, then yeah, you know, a good portion of society is going to um, treat me badly in some covert ways. And so to say that just because there's a you know, because the problem that they say is, you know, a problem at home, school, or work or something, right? Okay. And it's like, if I dressed up as a woman uh, at home, school, and work, there would be problems. <laughs> <laughs> I would feel ashamed. I would be oppressed. I would, I would, you know, if I dressed as Ridiculed. a... Yeah, if I dressed as a man, I would have less problems. So you see the problem there, right? It's like putting those together, dre- you know, dressing as a culturally non, you know, as, as the other gender or some other expressive way um, in the same paragraph or, you know, chapter as uh, wanting, fantasizing and wanting and actually raping other people, I just find to be really problematic because raping other people and the harm there is not a cultural aspect. You know, we, you know, we definitely do ostracize and stigmatize and oppress people who rape people. But I think most of us would say that's okay. <laughs> you know, like, of course, uh, and pedophiles, even if they don't rape people. 
Right. Well, so that's a whole other conversation in terms of pedophilia versus sexual molestation, right? You have people Mm -hmm. who think or fantasize about having sex. And I didn't realize there was a whole debate until I started talking about this on the podcast that there are people, there's a, there's a political movement, so to speak, of people who are uh, pedophiles. They fantasize or have a preference for having sex with um, some some younger age of person. It could be, you know, 11 year olds or five year olds or whatever. And they never act on it. And mm-hmm. they say that there's nothing wrong with them having the fantasy. You know, people have fantasies about people have fantasies about raping people and, or about being raped. And, mm-hmm. um, most people, once they wrestle with the implications and learn that there are people out there who just fantasize and never do anything with it, you know, could agree that they're, you know, we shouldn't throw them in jail or call them nasty words as long as they're not harming other people. Then, and they're not um, buying porn that exploits other people. You know, all that kind of stuff. Then, you know, many people agree that that they shouldn't be pathologized. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, so anyway, <laughs> yeah. Whereas in our culture of you know, we're still probably half Victorian. You know. Uh, we just label all of that as par- problematic and gross and perverted and amoral and against nature. And, and illegal in some cases. Right. So we were talking about the imprinting regarding the sexual act. Right. And, uh, it seems uh, that that might not be changeable. And this is studies done on pedophiles. Because uh, there are some imprintings that are changeable. For example, phobias, right? You can cure phobias. But it seems that you cannot cure pedophilia or change it. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess in the same way, in the same way, I mean, I guess in the same way that we can't uh, change the way you feel about your mother, for example. You know, if if your mother uh, was there for you, breastfeeding you or feeding you and holding you and, you know, from the time you're born until you're three uh, there's a certain feeling that we ha- all have around our mothers or father, whoever it was that, um, you know, one or more people who really were there for us during that time. It's a special imprinting bond mm-hmm. that children and, you know, adults will have towards towards their parents. And it includes a sexual repulsion, things like that. What do you mean? No, you're not attracted to your mother. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we have tried to change that sometimes because you'll have kids who have their parents die, for example, when mm-hmm. they're two, or their parents give them up for adoption, uh, or they're in an orphanage early in life, and then uh, age two, they're, they go into a family. And what we find is that that you know, critical window for imprinting is gone, has, has yeah. passed, and the person never really uh, uh, attaches in a healthy way mm-hmm. to those other adults, no matter how wonderful and loving they are. Um, I, yeah. I specialized in this in the beginning of my career. For some reason, I had a lot of Korean adoptees in America, mm-hmm. uh, and um, I think it's because I'm, I'm half Asian. So they thought, well, you know, he's an Asian guy. So maybe he connects with Asian adoptive parents or adoptive kids. 
So a lot of Asian, a lot of Korean kids adopted into white families and they, I learned over time over working with dozens of people that I could predict the level of defiance and difficulty with the teenager based on at what age the Korean kid was adopted into the family. Mm-hmm. So if the kid was adopted at, at day, say like 90, you know, three months, then the dysfunction would be a lot less than if the kid was adopted after one and a half years. Yeah. Um, and the, and past like one and a half years adopted and in the family, the dysfunction would be tremendous. You know, the attachment mm-hmm. problems, the lying, the defiance, the, lack of motivation to please any authority figure, uh, the drug use, the criminal behavior was just, uh, it, it was just a, you know, off the charts mm-hmm. uh, for a lot of these kids. Not that all kids are doomed, you know, if they're adopted, yeah. but, but it, and, and also it depends on what happens to them and before they were adopted. So if they did have a loving family, it might not be as bad as if exactly. You know, yeah, they did. Right. For some reason, if I remember right, in Korea, there were actual orphanages with nurses who have shifts and don't necessarily mm-hmm. bond with one child, you know? Yeah. Um, so, um, and I worked with other adoptees too. It's not just Korean kids. It would be like kids from the old Yugoslavia or something like that. It was, it was, it was the same thing. But anyway, mm-hmm. so, so so there's a critical um, window for sexual preference. Yeah. That you're or, or a sensitive period, I think it's it's sometimes referred to. Okay, sensitive um, period. Yeah, where you are. Or, yeah, where you. And, and you're saying it's is it zero to seven or is it like four to seven? Um, I would I would guess maybe three to seven, but again, this is just guesses. Right. Know? Well, that's consistent with how I. So it's interesting that you're bringing this up, you know, at the beginning of the podcast, I'm like, we didn't talk about, but now that I remember, I remember hypothesizing in a much less, you know, evidence-based manner uh, and technical manner, what you're talking about. Um, Cause in my experience um, personally and professionally, the, um, the time between say, uh, usually around four or five, six years old, maybe a little older, there's, if you experience some, so the, the, and so tell me if this is correct or not in terms of okay. the, how the theory goes, because I, I was talking about foot fetish mm-hmm. and the uh, story or the possible story that I talked about was you're four years old and you're small and you're playing on the ground with your Legos and you're under, you might even be under the table. Um, playing and Mm -hmm. your mom has her friend over and you're under the table. And uh, because we're in a Victorian, um, I guess I didn't include this part of it of like, because the The lack lack of sexual, right. Because the four-year-old is not being exposed to missionary, you know, naked missionary, uh, uh, you know, visual penetration. (laughs) Right. There's, there's this lack of, anything um, related to, to sex in terms of the way it's, um, you know, that, that way. Mm-hmm. And so he is um, open to input. And so he sees this foot and he, you know, it is at least ancillarily, if that's a word, related to sexuality, because 
you know, the foot is related to the leg, which is related to the vagina, right? And so for this young boy, if, if he was born with the predisposition for heterosexuality, then uh, because he has no access to vagina or visual yeah. vagina, this foot is like a, a close enough version to what his body is set up to imprint. You know, I didn't use mm-hmm. the imprint. And so he, so he looks at this foot and he gets this sexual charge at the age of four. You know, he, he doesn't mm-hmm. know what it means. He, you know, he doesn't think of it as sex, but he, he gets a jolt of energy looking at this foot. Um, and that imprint, and then kind of rinse and repeat that experience, you know, like three weeks later, he sees the same woman with her foot and he gets another charge from it. Mm-hmm. Well, that might develop into an adult fetish of, of feet where in order to have an erection or an orgasm, somehow fantasizing about feet or high heel shoes or even being in contact with feet and high heel shoes is the only way or or one of his preferred ways. Is am I saying this right? Uh yes. Yes. But there there will be a, there is another imprinting that that still needs that we need to discuss about and that is who the foot is connected to. So you can say that the the one imprinting regards the sexual act, but then another imprinting regarding the type of person. So, for example, you know, if if uh, um, like a white woman, or yeah, or a woman with with large breasts, or with uh, small breasts, or taller, right. or or so, you you might be interested in, uh, let's say, voyeurism, but you then you're separately imprinted on the type of person you want to be very heuristic with. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and this, the, the sort of obvious evidence of all of this to me is various different intense fetishes that people will have men and women uh, for things that have nothing to do with our species, you know, a couple hundred thousand years ago, you know, yeah. Like, and, like panty or high heel shoes, for example, or, sure. or panties, right? We didn't mm-hmm. have panties, um, you know, even just until recently. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, and other kinds of, you know, um, other kinds of things like that, like, uh, some people get turned on by guns, mm-hmm. having a sexual association with, you know, assault rifles or something and, or, or with dressing like the other, uh, quote unquote gender, you know, mm-hmm. uh, even just 150 years ago, the way that, um, quote unquote men and quote unquote women dressed in our Western society was completely different. And yet, and so, so today you have people who will be turned on by, uh, playing with, with those gender associations and the only way, and, and since it's so visceral and biological, right? I mean, there's nothing more biological than, sexuality right i mean having an erection or um having a you know sexual arousal in your genital region is a biological thing and mm-hmm. and for many people largely out of our control and so why would panties or dressing as another gender or high heel shoes uh be the primary focus if it weren't for imprinting right that's right yeah and it shows up at the right time. Um, and it, it leads to uh, a thing that, that Brett Carr in his book refers to as the masturbation paradox. 
which is people who are unhappy with their uh, sexual desires. So they wish they didn't want that. <laughs> you know, they want not to want their own um, sexual desires. They would rather have another sexual desire. So it's a strange, what well, he calls refers to it as the masturbation paradox. So Right. So I'm assuming what he's talking about is that as you become more lonely, you resort to masturbation because you don't have any other way of having a sexual. Um, no. So, well, so he, he talks about uh, um, a woman who uh, she's a, a Holocaust survivor and she has Holocaust themed fantasies that she only can orgasm when thinking about those. And she really wished she had other fantasies. Right. Yeah. And because she masturbates and gets orgasmic visual pleasure from those. Uh, from things she wished she didn't. It, it get further pleasure from. associates those things she doesn't want to associate with sex with sex. Yeah. Yeah. And the, in Israel in the 1950s, there was pornographic magazine for, uh, which was Holocaust themed. Interesting. Called Stalag. Yeah. Because you're four years old and you're in the camps. And, and then when you're 20 in Israel in the 50s, you might be imprinted on, on, on uh, camp situation, you know, uh, Holocaust themed situations. Yeah. What, what were the, what were the visuals in that? Like, well, uh, first of all, you can, you can Google it and, and see, but it's, it's uh, cartoons, but you know, uh, um, Sadomasochistic situations with, you know, scantily clad women and either dominant or submissive roles and things like that. So I'm guessing that's pretty controversial that you would have survivors of the camps wanting pornography that involves the camps. Yeah. Yeah. I had never heard of that before. But yeah, yeah if there's ever an example of imprinting, right? <laughs> Yes. Um, it totally goes against all your political and moral and socially acceptable uh, mores, uh, and yet people still did it. Uh, yeah, and they, those magazines sold, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's uh, quite tragic. Now, um, another way that this makes sense is within the context of evolvability. So... Uh, do you know the do you know what evolvability is? Um, did we talk about that last time? In terms, maybe of I mentioned it, like an openness uh, to like the like the evolution of evolution or something. Yeah, yeah. But evolvability, one of the things. There's a lot of things to it, but one of the things is that when things are good, you want to stay the same. You want the variation to be low, right? Right. And when things are bad, you want to increase the variation. Right, right, right. Or when something has recently changed, uh, you want the variation to, to increase. So right. um, a famous example is the uh, 20th century uh, domestication of foxes in the Soviet Union, where initially all the foxes looked the same, um, but those are silver foxes. But when they started selecting them for uh, tameness or for, for lack of ag aggressivity, they um, suddenly you had a, a huge increase in the way they looked. So suddenly you had curly tail and you had different colorations and you have, the, you know, 
floppy ears and, and things like that. So because, uh, uh, and this is a mechanism that increases uh, evolvability or enhances evolvability, which is a, a timely increase in variation. Yeah. And so, so the idea is, is that many organisms, if not all, have this mechanism that kicks in when there is a incursion on the environment somehow the yeah. you know in terms of um you know the it's it's, it's hard not to use like problematic language like the dna detects a problem in the yeah of course it's well but, it's the the selection pressures change right and and somehow the dna there's a mechanism in the in the in mo in a lot of dna sequences that uh quote unquote detect that it's not detecting but it's some responses responds to it somehow to say like um okay now uh variate in lots of ways not just you know because we don't know exactly what variation is necessary to adapt to this environment that you know mm -hmm. increase the amount of mutations this will yeah. uh so or variation yeah right and so yeah, the, also mutations that that we see a lot in plants i don't know how I think there's also evidence in animals, but in plants, yeah, when they're stressed, as they're stressed, they're about to die, they mutate. Mm. So mutation is not random. Right. Uh, and, and there always has to be a balance between the amount of mutations versus stability, because if, if you have too many mutations, then your, your species is likely to yeah. mutate or too, if, too if much. If you evolve to too fast if you evolve too fast you can there can be a few horrible winters and then you might forget something that it took you a million years to learn right, right, right but if right. you evolve too slow then you evolve too slow right. and, and you don't adapt so there is there needs to be a balance but one of the things that enhances this is a timely increase in variation and what we see with um sexual perversion is a, that there was an inheritance uh, mechanism in place that uh, children saw um, people having sex became imprinted on that and that continued right right from generation to generation and at some point in the 18th 19th century in the west and i would guess that studies would say would would, would tell us that people in certain third world countries um that are still see sexuality as children that they would not have as big a variability in the types of pornography that people there watch. Right. But in places like England, uh, that you'll have huge variability. Right. So, um, the, once you change this, uh, uh, inheritance mechanism from generation to generation and suddenly, um, things have changed. And so it makes sense that as a response, there's a huge increase in variability. Right. So suddenly you have foot fetishists and, and all things like that, which, you know, you, it, we would have, if, if a Roman emperor was into shoes or something, we probably would have heard of it. Right. Uh, but it, it, it is a modern phenomenon, but it is a real, real phenomenon. Well, it is interesting to think about. I mean, I, I'm a, a bit of a mildly ignorant or mostly ignorant uh amateur historian about Roman history. And there are some Roman emperors and generals who were at least reportedly uh, to have had some interesting paraphilias. Yeah, it, there, there, there are. And there's uh, people who dress as women. And things like right. That. 
So you, you could, um, like Nero, for example, I mean, it's always, you know, historians will say like, it's hard to know if it was propaganda or not, but there's, you know, at least some evidence that, that Nero and some other um, problematic emperors had uh, paraphilias around rape and around mm-hmm. killing people while having sex, mm-hmm. you know, or, or that. Caligula, probably. Yeah. And, and I, it just popped in my head. And of course it's complete speculation, but when, during the time there were a lot of slaves and the, it was, it wasn't uncommon to have sex with slaves and slaves were also routinely beaten and sometimes killed. And so I wonder if that's where the paraphilia comes from. It's like yeah. you're four years old and you're watching your dad or your uncles or your cousins or friends rape and kill slaves. And that produces a paraphilia around that. Yeah, for sure. But still, even even with that, they're not hardly as common as they are today, and certainly not among the general population, it seems. Well, right. I mean, it would only in Roman society be for a very small percentage of the people in society, and mm-hmm. um, uh, and it didn't show up very much anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's interesting. And it, and it might be also, you know, stories to try to defame those people. So, Yuval, is the recommendation yeah. that, uh, all children should watch their parents have sex? Well, either their parents or um, cer- certainly may- maybe the recommendation that they will, they will see um, depictions of the opposite sex that are not um, Photoshopped. You know? ah. um, a friend of mine, he grew up in Morocco and he was, uh, he would go to baths, uh, you know, public baths with his mother on, until age 12 he would be around naked women but those are real women and today he is attracted to he's not attracted to thin women right. um so uh it's uh, you know it, he is um i don't know if that's good or bad for him but uh we do have people who are imprinted on completely unnatural body forms right Right. And porn in general is, is not, you know, a typical depiction of actual sex. Yeah, absolutely. So it could be that we should not only have, you know, make sure that kids don't watch porn, but make sure they they watch realistic sexual behavior. But of course you cannot uh, today in today's uh, climate, you cannot, um, you cannot suggest that, and uh, well, we could suggest I mean, it. Can. We can't. We can't expect it. <laughs> yeah, but we. You know, I think. I think we can suggest it. But I mean, I. I. I can get behind that. I'll suggest it. That uh, parents out there figure out some way of exposing children when they're young to uh, depictions of bodies and of sexuality that is healthy, and not to think of it as. Um, as somehow perverted or creating something bad for kids, it, it might on actually the, on the other hand to develop you might, normally. You might have uh, kids that grow up like that, and then they'll be the only vanilla kids, and all their friends would be, you know, different kinds of perverts, and they'll be the, the boring ones. So. <laughs> well, that's interesting. It's like, uh, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it there is a there. I do talk with people who are in relationships and they will need to have pornography. They both need pornography, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if it's because of that imprinting when they were young. 
uh, it could be. There are also people whose sexual fantasies are impossible to fulfill, you know. Right. There are people who are, you know, ins- uh, attracted to humans who are, you know, the size of a Smurf. You right. know? And there are no people like that. And for that, I think uh, either either pornography or hypnosis is is a, a possible possible solution. Yeah. And, you know, you're not saying this, you're not saying the opposite of this, but it should be mentioned that uh, fantasy is fine, that there's nothing wrong with, oh, yeah, with, with uh, fantasizing about Smurfs. <laughs> you know, you can fantasize people. I've done some recent episodes on fantasies about rape for, mm-hmm. for both men and women, uh, fantasizing about being raped and fantasizing about raping others. And I'd never really thought about it in depth before and, until I looked at the research and, it's something like half of women have, you know, occasionally fantasized about being raped and something like 10 or 15% regularly fantasize about it. Mm-hmm. And yet none of them would want to be raped. Right. And yeah. then something like um, a third of men have, have fantasized at some point about raping women mm-hmm. or, or men. And, um, and yet, so if a third of men have occasionally and say, you know, 10, 5% or something uh, regularly fantasize about it, um, the, the percentage of men who or people who actually rape other people, you know, course of uh, sexual activity, it's pretty low. It happens a lot. And the few individuals who commit those crimes are uh, abusing dozens, if not hundreds of people, which creates this huge you know problem in our mm-hmm. society. But but anyway, my point is is that fantasizing about um, those things, as long as it stays fantasy, is totally fine. There's no- yeah, and you can and you can set up a, a role playing, you know, a consensual non consent kind of a thing. Right, right. There's two kinds of rape fantasy, even just rape fantasy. There's the consensual rape fantasy and the non consensual rape fantasy. The mm-hmm. consensual rape fantasy is like you she she wants to but she can't admit it you know it's sort Mm -hmm. of like um you know an interesting statistic that i found in my research was that in the harlequin novels the romance novels uh, Mm -hmm. that are predominantly uh, consumed by women i can't remember the exact stat but it was something like 70 percent of these uh, of the books have some one or more scenes of of rape essentially what we, what we would consider to be sexual assault mm-hmm. and, and how, you know, and similar to 50 shades. I didn't, I've never read 50 shades of gray. Yeah, was there, was there non-consent or was there sort of consensual ish rape in 50 shades of gray? Do we know? I don't know. Yeah. I assume. <laughs> um, I'll tell you about 19th century pornographic yeah. uh, novels that, you know, I, I, I read about, I, I haven't read any of them, but one of the recurring themes is that the, there is a woman, a virgin, and she gets um, kidnapped by, you know, the Sultan or some, something like that. And um, at the first time they have sex, uh, he rapes her. And after that, she's, uh, she's into it. Right. So, the like you know the taming of the shrew kind of a a thing where the first uh, uh, sexual uh, experience for the woman is rape, but the next ones she actually enjoys it. So it's a weird, weird thing to to see. And and all of this, of course, is just in the West. I think the, these is pornography from England. 
but uh, right, right. Yeah. The idea goes is that women in our society, and particularly in the past, were caught between a rock and a hard place in that they had a normal sexual desire, but society said if they acted on that desire or even had desire in them, that made them immoral, a slut, a, you know, a, um, like a prostitute or mm-hmm. something, you know? yeah. and they didn't know what to do with that. So a way out was to be raped. Mm-hmm. And then you can, you can say afterwards. I didn't want to. Yeah, I didn't want to do it. I, I I tried to say no, but he's bigger or had a scimitar to my throat. I couldn't. Mm-hmm. I couldn't say no. And and then you can get some sexual pleasure from that. And so that's where uh, and a lot of the romance novels have that in it. So um, the the last thing I want I want to talk about is that if we are right. And Hannah Aronson is right. And this is sexual imprinting in humans. What that means is that your sexual fantasies do not mean much about you at all. Right. That they are not. You're imprinting. Yeah. And that you're not accountable for them. Right. Uh, And that it's not, uh, because I think that. It's not a moral shortcoming. You're not a sick, perverted, terrible human being. Yeah, and it's not even if you have a, a you know a fantasy of hurting people, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. Or, um, but just in general, people, uh, I think that people who do not understand why it is that they have this sexual fantasy, why are they, you know, exhibitionists or why whatever it is that they're they're into, they can really. Uh, feel a lot of guilt about it and have a lot of, so there'll be a lot of second order problems that come from a not understanding of, of that it's imprinting, but understanding it as imprinting and from pedophilia, at least some of the imprinting is unchangeable. It's unclear whether. Yeah. There's this huge association as most people know that if you are sexually abused or, um, exposed to um, that sort of thing as a young person, then your chances of, of being attracted to children later in life is increased and therefore your chance of abusing children increases. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it makes, and I, um, that makes total sense. Um, And I did a whole episode on pedophilia as well. And Mm -hmm. um, there are other routes like uh, one listener pointed out that for some people, it's that they are immature uh, emotionally. And mm-hmm. um, when they are developing as a teenager and having strong sexual urges, they, they don't feel comfortable with people their own age. And so their first sexual targets are people younger because they just feel more comfortable with younger people because emotionally they're on that level. But for other people who say you're four years old and a older cousin or an adult or somebody um, sexually, uh, you know, abuses you then you grow up and associate um well that's interesting i mean i i guess the the sort of direct correlation of a quote-unquote fetish is people who like older people right Mm -hmm. yeah They, they like to have sex with people who are or or powerful people or people who, you know, are in power over them or something. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so there's that imprinting. Yeah. Um, But what about humiliate them? Yeah. 
But what about being imprinted with children? Would that be some sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, someone who's also a child that's having sex with, you know, like a eight year old having sex with seven year old or something? Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure it could be that, that the, you know, that pedophilia specifically was something that you were exposed to is, you know, adult to child uh, sexuality, but, um, I don't know. And I, 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 it seems to me like pedophilia is pretty rare compared to some of the, the other, um, fetishism that, or paraphilias. Yeah. It's hard but, to lock yeah, down. It's hard to know. People respond And if it's age six, people won't remember, right? Or might not remember, right? Right. And now the the so there's one problem is people not understanding themselves, and I think that can be a very, very uh, uh, can be very difficult problem for some people. And the other problem is people not other people not understanding each other. So there is there are people who. Uh, would justifiably complain that men are attracted to unnatural uh, female uh, beauty standards, right? right, right. And uh, come and and uh, complain to the men, telling them that you should change. Now, it might be that if it's imprinting, then that generation is unchangeable. We can help the next generation, you know, yeah. we can help uh, put depictions of, nat- you know, real looking people for the next generation to see, but but um, it's a runaway feedback loop because as you today have young, you know, particularly younger uh, men, just using men, heterosexual men as an mm-hmm. example, being attracted to completely unrealistic uh, female beauty standards, mm-hmm. uh, they end up consuming and uh, creating a high demand for pornography that is like that and even more, you know, even more and more so like that. And then you um, like the uh, handicap principle, so to speak, yeah. the, the perfect pornography, you know, uh, depiction. And then you're a younger person, uh, you know, ready to be imprinted. And if 99.9% of pornography out there that is available to you to, to, to be randomly exposed to is, of that nature, then you're not even pornography, just regular media depictions of people. Right. Like advertisements or something. Yeah. Yeah. And so it just, and then that creates the next generation who are even, who are imprinted on an even more unrealistic standard. (laughs) Because one of the things that I, I think about sometimes when I think about this idea is that, and it's hard to, you know, tell exactly because it's, it's a, it's not a hard science, but like when, when you look at models in the seventies, they look more natural. I mean, there's a more natural sort of uh, vibe to the seventies, you know, cause it was. I mean, they have pubic hair in porn. Yeah. And just, you know, frizzy hair and mm-hmm. uh, just, you know, not so great skin or not, not sort of the, the not, standard well, of today. Well, they don't have the body makeup kind of stuff that right. assume they. And obviously not Photoshop, right? Mm-hmm. And how they're and and so what a lot of people of today will look at that and they'll be like, "Uh, oh, gross!" You know, mm-hmm. just look at you know the the models of the seventies, men and women, and and they'll just be like, "Ew, that's so gross!" And and like like male chest hair, you know, mm-hmm. was huge in the seventies and eighties, you know. 
uh, yeah. Burt Reynolds. I mean, how old are you, Yuval? I'm 43. Okay, so we're the same age. And you remember all that chest hair, Magnum yeah. PI. You know, that was that was the epitome of manliness was chest hair. I, I can't remember yeah. the last time Sean I saw... Connor. What? Sean, yeah, Sean Connery. Connor. Yeah, of course. Hairy dudes, you know? Mm-hmm. And today, you got Channing Tatum and... Um, you know, all the other uh, heartthrobs, uh, uh, Justin Bieber, and they don't have a, they don't have a, you know, a follicle yep. on their body. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, it, it's, it's interesting to, to see that, you know? Yeah. And we do, we do see historically and geographically that the things vary, but we, we only recently have this kind of Photoshop and, and surgical, augmentation that we have today. Um, so we'll, we'll see where, where that goes. Well, I, because, you know, as you were saying, it's like we can't possibly expect society to even hear us, let alone change. <laughs> uh, it's probably just going to get worse and worse and worse, right? And today we have a, a situation where the ideal female body is different body when the woman is clothed in a magazine like Vogue or when the woman is naked in a magazine like Playboy, those are different types of women. Yeah, completely. Which is insane. Yeah. Does this have to do with race preference too in sex? It, it might be. Uh, and, and of course you have to remember that you, you sometimes have negative assortive mating. So people are attracted to something that's exotic. Um, and it could be that some of the imprinting is flexible, that it's like phobias that are changeable and others it's not so, um, yeah. But it it could uh, also be part of of race preference, and there are people who are attracted or unattracted to certain races, and also certain accents, which are surprisingly sexual. Um, that yeah. might think that I'm I'm if I'm unattracted to a certain race, I might be racist, but you might not be. Right, right. I mean, certainly racism plays a part in. Uh, all of that and in what we're exposed to, you know, like in the United United States and I'm guessing in a lot of Western societies, the racism against black people is strong enough so that um, uh, pornography or depiction or models, black models or black pornography actors and actresses are, not hired and not preferred. And so mm-hmm. therefore it just creates this, you know, um, imprinting and culture around seeing particular people of different races as more or less sexual, depending on their race, right. Yeah. Or a different kind of sexuality. Mm-hmm. A thing that Asian people sometimes complain about Asian men is that they're seen as feminine. Mm-hmm. And they're seen as, um, not, very macho, you know, even though, uh, the, the two and a half billion Asians on the planet, uh, some of them are the most macho people you've ever met, you know? Yeah. Uh, but in America, anyway, in the United States, it's, they're seen as, uh, nerds, good at math, uh, the model minority, and that's not associated with what we consider to be masculine. Mm-hmm. And, and they will complain about, um, always being put into the friend zone because you know, they they're seen in a certain way, you know, and, and yeah. I have Asian and, and, and Asian women sometimes have the opposite uh, right. complaints. Yeah. Right. They're over sexualized, you know, mm-hmm. and, and uh, 
yeah, anyway. Um, yeah. yeah. And I also, it makes me also think about MILF, you know, mother I'd like to, you know, F, F. Yeah. Uh, uh, pornography. It's, I, if I remember right, a couple years ago or I don't know, a year ago, I was looking at statistics on pornography search terms that were the most popular. And I, I believe like MILF is like frequently one of the most popular. Yeah, and incense, incest things. Yeah. Oh, well, that's a whole other kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the MILF uh, pornography is an older woman or what's perceived as an older woman, you know? And so yeah. you wonder about the imprinting of young heterosexual men who grow up without any stimuli, as you're saying, of, of other kinds of sex and, and their primary sexual object is, is their mother, you know, seeing their mother undress or, you know, just being in contact with their mother's mm-hmm. body. And then later on in life, they um, have a preference for, older women, you know, mm-hmm. women who are mothers. <laughs> yeah. Or, or the mother's friends or aunts or. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So in the, this book, uh, the, who has been sleeping in your head by Brett Carr, which is a big, he did a huge survey of thousands of people where it's sort of a completing the Kinsey survey. So Kinsey asked people about what they do, but he didn't ask them about what they think about. And right. In this big survey, he only asks what people think about, and the variation is unbelievable. But he has a, a, a chapter where it's a, a list of sexual fantasies that are, it's unclear whether the person is straight or gay. So um, it's, uh, I think he calls that one the strap on paradox. The man who wants to, a woman to wear a strap on and have sex with them, is he gay or not? Or is he straight? Yeah. Um, I think it's straight, but you know, well, I can, me, I can I, see I don't, it going either way. Yeah. It's like, why who cares? You know, like, yeah, yeah of course, of course, who cares? But, it, uh, um, and, and regarding like all what of the this, label you know, is, I'm, you know, not, I'm not judging anything. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. um, there is a, a but you're saying you think they've, they've been imprinted or have a preference for men that they're so of it's, it's unclear <laughs> how they got, to it, but somehow they got imprinted um, on 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 that right. Apparently. Wanting um, to be penetrated with with a, a phallus, right? By a woman, yeah. Um, and there's there's a, a, a term uh, I think that's from a, a Savage. He's a, a, a columnist, sexual uh, sex columnist. Yeah. Dan Savage. He's, Dan Savage. He's here in Seattle. Yeah, so I, I think that's his term is uh, kink karma, and it, the way it goes is that the, uh, uh, the person who breaks up with his significant other because they tell him about their foot fetish, they're going to end up with a significant other that doesn't tell them about their dog do fetish or <laughs> something a lot worse. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, you should be completely non-judgmental about this if it's if it's imprinting as I think it is. Well, and, you know, there's zero harm in a man having a wife or partner, woman, who um, puts on a strap on and has yeah. sex with him. I mean, you know, just, you know, we've all seen Deadpool. That's what he was into. Yeah, that's right. Or they tried out, I think. Or something yeah. Like. No, I think it was, you know, because I, th- I think in one and two, he, he, mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he liked that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, interesting. So is there any part of this we didn't get to in terms of your theory? No, I think uh, I think we, you know, uh, and I, as I, uh, I, I mentioned, some of this stuff was said before, but a lot of it was not. So, you know, if anybody wants to write an academic article, you just, you know, give give me a little credit or something. And, but, yeah. uh, you know, I'm happy to. I think a lot of people really um, would benefit from understanding this. And it's called sexual imprinting? Yeah. Sexual imprinting is the, and, and those are the famous uh, uh, ex- animal experiments, usually birds. Yeah. And it's a well-known phenomenon among animals, obviously. Yeah. And, right? and with pandas, right? That there was pandas that weren't, didn't want to have sex with each other, but they were sexually attracted to human caregivers. Ah. So there was that, that aspect uh, where it was also also sort of came up right because with pandas it was this huge concern as their numbers are dwindling and their sexual uh, i can't remember the exact terms but they they have in the wild they have a very short window of ovulation i think Mm -hmm. and and the sexual mating process is is pretty tenuous in even in the wild and they were having a really hard time getting pandas in captivity to not only have sex, but also to have to, to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. And so they would be concerned <laughs> and, and because they're so delicate and so, uh, or not, they're so few in number. Uh, I'm guessing that these caregivers would as humans, okay, well, as, when they're babies, we need to take care of them because we need to make sure that they live because yeah. we can't leave them to the chance of their real parents because they might, not pay attention to them yeah, or if they're if the baby was adapt, uh, abandoned or if the mother dies or then yeah. they'll get rescued and end up in a zoo right and so you know we'll take care of it you know and and make it and it'll live but <laughs> it'll want to it'll have a human fetish yeah <laughs> uh so is it a is it a, an accepted phenomenon in the evolutionary psychology and all of its ancillary um, or, you know, uh, associated so, schools of thought? Well, as I said, imprinting in general is an interesting mixture of nature and nurture. So it's yet one uh, in a long list of examples where uh, the distinction between nature and nurture is uh, um, doesn't work and actually misleads. So, one of the examples is imprinting, uh, and there's uh, the, the experiments are not ambiguous. You know, they're pretty straightforward, uh, and they're very easy experiments to do. I actually know a, a a girl that grew up with with farm animals, and she put the duck eggs in the chicken nest, and then she had ducks that would rape chickens. <laughs> you know, right? Um, and uh, so Cause, it's cause ducks in. Ducks rape each other. I mean, the male ducks rape the girl. Yeah, they're the only animal that we think. There may be dolphins as well, but that might actually have rape uh, in addition to humans, of course. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they they used to think that all sorts of animals rape each other, but then they realized that that's actually not not the case. Because it looks like rape. It looks like. Us. Because yeah, like lions are having sex, the male is like biting the lion yeah. on the back of the neck and but then they found out more and more that the female can always stop it and many times they do and it's not uh 
Um, but with ducks, <laughs> ducks and maybe dolphins, that's where the, they still think there might be rape. Yeah. So in, in this case, the poor chickens were raped by ducks who were imprinted on chickens when they were hatched. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Duck, if people out there listening, if you want to be completely mind blown, look up duck penises and how they work exactly. It yeah. is one of the most strangest biological <laughs> forms that has ever been created on this planet. The duck penis is, it's like it's a like weird a curly cue, feathery, uh, and it grows and it's, it looks super delicate and thin and, you know, and it's feathery, but it grows like, you know, I don't know how long it is compared to its body, but, um, it's all this uh, evolutionary uh, direction that uh, male and female ducks have been going where the female duck has been evolving a vagina that has different dead ends and stuff in it. So wow. the, the male, uh, so if she, if, if the girl duck sort of sits a certain way, the male is likely to go down one of the dead ends in the vagina Wow. And, and not impregnate her. So she can, so even though she's being raped, she can sort of sit a certain way and not be impregnated by him. Wow. So uh, it's been this um, arms race between penis and vagina for, yeah. for the male. For I the guess male. that she does have a way to shut it all down. Like right, right. Some Republicans think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on, you know. Um, yeah, that's it. so is it accepted in the evolutionary psychology world that sexual. So no, there are, there are people in the evolutionary psychology world that still believe in things like, you know, nature nurture division or, uh, uh, you, you know, that the way we evolved is, uh, unrelated to the way we develop. So how we changed from a monkey to us and how we change right. from a zygote. Yeah, and, that's the vast majority, or at least the, the most vocal, yeah. you know, they, you know, it's like you've, they'll explain rape uh, behavior in humans by saying that we evolved to rape people, you know, or, or foot fetish. It's like, well, well, I find they often avoid certain topics that are hard for them to explain from that nature perspective. Um, So I'm guessing they avoid the foot fetish thing or the, because that was not selected for in the Savannah. Right. Or the high heel (laughs) fetish. It's like, how could you explain that through nature? Um, but yeah, they often will uh, say, well, men evolved to, to rape, you know, and, and that's, or, um, gang rapes, you know, they'll explain gang rape behavior as mm-hmm. uh, innate, um, in men that, you know, we likely gang raped women on the Savannah, you know, <laughs> no, it could be with, with, uh, imprinting many times the imprinting is not neutral. So for example, there are uh, people who it's easier for them to be imprinted on or on humans in general uh, on snakes than it is on cats, right? Uh, phobia imprinting. Uh, right, so right. It, so it takes a lot less of a stimulus to get you to be afraid of snakes than it uh, the stimulus that would make you afraid of, of cats, right? Right, and just to expand that for people who don't know, and, and I've talked about this before, and so correct me if I'm wrong, but based on what you're saying, and I think my understanding has evolved over time, where quote-unquote, born with a susceptibility to a phobia for snakes, but we don't, we're not born with the, with the phobia of snakes. Yeah. 
That's what it looks like. If in a certain uh, period of time, when we're young, we have an experience of fear associated with snakes, then that uh, will then we'll are given the opportunity to develop a fear for snakes. Whereas we don't have a fear of, we don't have a biological, we're not born with a biological disposition for being, for having a phobia of trees, for example. Even though that too can happen, right? Right. But you'd have to have The stimulus needs to be, yeah. Yeah. Needs to be more significant. Now, of course, phobias do run in families and um, the chance that you will have a phobia is maybe determined in, in, part by your parents but what the content is looks like it's not related to the parents but um and and except they said maybe uh you know uh, needles but many times the kid becomes imprinted on the phobia because he sees his parents being afraid of something right so if you see your parents afraid of a snake or of a dog um you might be imprinted because of their fear and it that looks like they actually you inherited the fear of of dogs from them, but it's not. You just were imprinted. Be- well, you did. You have to and that. half didn't, right? You, you, yeah, you but they wasn't. It wasn't genetic inheritance. Yeah, right. you did inherit it, but the inheritance was a cultural inheritance. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I for me, for the the sort of slam dunk on this for me is that when I grew up I grew up in the woods and there were snakes and spiders and bugs and all sorts of critters and I have no phobia like you could put you know you could put 20 spiders on my arms and I'd be like oh Mm -hmm. spiders you know and snakes too like I I mean I know some snakes can kill you and I guess I know some spiders can kill you but but I just so I can be self-preserving and you know it's it's not like I'm illogical or something but but if a spider lands on me or there's a spider in my house or something, like it just, it doesn't get to me at all. Yeah. Um, but it, it could be that people, you don't have any disposition to phobias at all. Do you have, are your parents phobic? Um, I mean, they, they lived with me in the woods. So <laughs> um, no, no not, not heights, just spiders. Anyway. Not heights or, I mean, I mean, my mom doesn't like animals touching her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, so I'd call it, you know, I call my mom mildly phobic. Uh, Maybe. Yeah. yeah. So in my family, my mother has phobias, my sister, my father and brother don't. But I know that um, when I was five, my brother was born. And because of that, my parents didn't do a, a bug spray in the house. And uh, there are cockroaches. And I remember my sister when I was a little kid telling me that they climb on me when I'm asleep. And until today, I have a somewhat of a phobia of cockroaches. <laughs> Just of cockroaches. cockroaches. Yeah, now, I don't think that they're going to harm me in any way. I don't, I'm not, I know, I'm fully aware of the irrationality of the fear, but yeah. there it is. But not other bugs, just cockroaches. Yeah, just cockroaches. Is that why you moved to Boulder? Because there's no cockroaches <laughs> No, no. Because um, there aren't any cockroaches, to my knowledge, in Boulder, Colorado. No, there, there might be in some buildings that they live in the building, but... Uh, you know, but they don't, uh, yeah, they can't survive the winters. So, <laughs> yeah, they're not in Seattle either. Uh, the, the very few times that I've seen them in Seattle, it's downtown in a very, you know, dirty city environment. Um, yeah. And they're, they're probably generations living within the same building or something. Right. Yeah. 
one time it was in a Japanese restaurant. I saw it they, and they were tiny. They were like, I don't know, like a millimeter long uh, cockroaches that were climbing up the wall in this, in this one trail. It was like they were on some sort of wagon train or something. And then another time I was a security guard downtown Seattle and I uh, had to roam this building to make sure there, everything's okay. And I went to the bowels of this old building downtown Seattle, Pioneer Square, and I uh, open this door and I flip on this light and I I had no idea what I'd seen because I'd never seen big cockroaches before. Um, but it took me like 10 seconds to process what I had seen. But what I had seen was there was a sandwich in the middle of the floor and there were hundreds of cockroaches. This might freak you out, by the way. Yeah, well, were, I'm, I'm not that bad. <laughs> hundreds of cockroaches eating the sandwich. Uh-huh. And when I flipped on the light, they all ran for the yeah. recover. And, and I, so, you know, I flip on the light and I just see all this movement. I'm like, uh, and then, and then nothing, you know? And then I, I'm like, what did I just hallucinate or something? <laughs> Cause they move fast, man. Cockroaches yeah. fast when they want to be. They can fly too. They can fly too. And they were different sizes. There were the big ones, uh-huh. and the small ones, and, you know? Um, yeah. so, so it's, it's, I, I used to be worse, but it's getting better. And, uh, Today it's it's pretty mild, yeah, yeah. But you know, phobias you can get rid of them, right? With using yeah, the yeah. I've talked about on the podcast. I had a yeah. phobia, PTSD around medical procedures mm-hmm. that developed I don't know, when I was thirty-ish or something, and it was intense. And it took me ten, fifteen years to slowly uh, expose myself, you know, ever so slowly to the to those, you know, stimuli to, um, habituate to it. But mm-hmm. for the first, I don't know, seven or eight years, I didn't even want to work on it at all because it was so terrifying. Wow. It, it took a while for me to actually, okay, I, I've got to get over this cause I'm getting older. I'm going to have to, I'm going to be. Yeah. And there are people who come to America and they say, you know, when the a kid gets a shot in America, then they spray him with, uh, you know, anesthesia, you know, they numb the place and the, there's a lot of focus on not causing any pain. And some people belittle that and they say, you know what, you know, that's, that's, they're all, you know, wh- why are they so, so weak? But I think it's really important because people will develop phobias of doctors and that kills you. People die because right. they have phobias of doctors. So yeah, yeah. it's important not to traumatize five-year-old or, you know, three-year-old with young kids. Um, right. as little as possible. Well, to me, the, and I'm not an expert on this, but my impression of the action of say, giving a young child, a, um, a vaccine is to, uh, have a physician or whoever is administering it be someone who really understands children and, um, you know, distracts them or is happy Mm -hmm. and like, Hey, we're going to do this. It might hurt a little bit, but it's okay. You know, and just, you know, all it's not necessarily as close by. Yeah. Not necessarily the pain. It's like the way we often do these things is like, okay, we're going to go into this very scary room with all these scary noises and bottles of God knows what. And there's going to be a scary stranger who's going to like, and, and the, the parent is going to be really tense and right. expecting you to be traumatized. So they're right. going to, you're going to catch it emotional contagion from them. 
Right. And the kid is trapped because mm-hmm. there's no flexibility there. Right. And you add all those things up and, you know, you rinse and repeat that a few times at the age of four and you're going to hate needles. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, interesting. Yeah. It's so interesting to think about all the different ways in which we as humans have a combination of nature and nurture and how we as a society just and many scientists just completely misunderstand that. Yeah. So that's why, you know, I'm, I'm all about returning to Aristotle where everything important is habits, not acts, not rules, habits, which habits are all about being neither nature nor nurture, right? It's uh, Blaise Pascal said it's human nature to have second nature. Right. So it's the, the, our first nature is to have a second nature. And so, you right. know, yeah, uh, we, we have, we, our first nature is to sexually imprint on whatever is put before us. And that becomes second nature. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ducks don't have that, but you wonder, you know, if, if, if ducks had a society, right. And maybe that's what that whole, you know, pithy statement means is because of a society and culture and abstract thinking, we, and we have choices in terms of what we expose ourselves to and our children to. Yeah, and an interesting example from, from evolution about this is songbirds. That the female songbirds, when they're babies, they hear their father's song, right? Because the father plays, you know, plays a role in raising them. And uh-huh. they get imprinted on those songs. Uh-huh. And if you take um, orphans that, you know, uh, and you raise them separately where they're never imprinted, they don't hear the songs. They have horrible songs that nobody wants to. You know, nobody's interested in them. Yeah. Um, but the um, they they do get their father's song normally, normal situations, and then they would elaborate on it or they would add. Uh, so it's it's an interesting place where you still have imprinting. It's not full sexual imprinting, uh, right? Because they still may be attracted to their own species, but the song imprinting is very very clear. Yeah, and it's not as if they don't sing at all. They have an instinct yeah. to sing, but it's just horrible. You know, it. I talked about Justin Bieber earlier. I, I, I have no idea. I haven't looked into his life. I'm very unaware of his life. But one of the one of the questions that a lot of people had, I don't know, ten years ago or something, was why Justin Bieber became what a lot of people thought of to be a douchebag. Because when he was young, you know, and starting his career, he was this cute, innocent seeming, uh, you know, floppy, blonde haired kid. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as he had a chance to express himself, as he became 18, 19, he became, um, you know, this tough, and he's small, but he's like, trying to be muscly, and he has all these tattoos, and he takes his shirt off a lot. And you know, there's just this sort of um, total shift in, and maybe it was some decision that him and him and his, you know, marketing agents figured out, you got, got to get, you're an adult now, you got to be tough. I don't know. But a lot of his fans and a lot of society turned on him at that point because it was like, why is he being so, you know, hyper-masculine when he's, when his image and his, the way he looks is just so different, you know? And I was confused by it too, mildly. And then I learned that his dad was hyper-masculine in this way. And mm-hmm. I, I could be wrong about all this, but, but I remember a long time ago thinking, oh, you know, when he was growing up, he, I didn't have this term, but he was imprinted 
uh, in terms of masculinity and sexuality by his father. And once he had a chance to be old enough to actually be like his father, then he actually became his father. Yeah. So it, it, this might not be classical the way we use imprinting. Because for imprinting, there needs to be a sensitive period. So it needs to be a, a point, you know, an age where uh, you're a lot more affected by it than at other ages. And this might have been just a general milieu. General just general learning about masculinity. Mm, yeah. But, you know, you could imagine when Beaver sure. was four and his dad was walking around the house and mm-hmm. looking a certain way, then that would, uh, you know, that would affect things. Yeah. Um, or, or, you know, watching uh, uh, media, you know, it might right. be masculine. To be, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It just seems to have. So, so was Freud right in that we all want to have sex with our parents? Uh, no. <laughs> um I don't, I don't think, uh, I mean, that, that theory is based on, uh, on the assumption that the, uh, our development copies our evolutionary history. I mean, so that, um, you know, how in the, when we're, um, fetuses or embryos, we start out looking like, a, a bacteria. And after that, we look like a tadpole and after that we look like a fish and after that we look like a mouse and after, right. Yeah. So they thought that we're actually going through evolution, but we're not. Right. Um, but his, that, that, a lot of his theory is based on, on that assumption that is today completely. But yeah, we don't, uh, we're, we're not uh, sexual in a regular sexual way as kids. So it's, I mean. But it, but it seems related. I mean, in a sort of a 3% way or something in that we are looking towards our parents as examples where we're, we're born with a mechanism to look outwards for examples of sexuality. Yeah. But it, I, I think if it's imprinting, then it shows up at age three, four, five, six, whenever it does, but it's not there before. Right. Uh, but the notion of the Oedipus or the electric complex, if, you know, there's a, there's a ring of truth to it, although most of it is is not supported by science or observation or, you know, what most people would consider mm-hmm. to be, um, ex, you know, established or consensus around evolution and development of children. But the, the notion of that, which was quite uh, controversial to this day, I guess, particularly at the time that, you, you know, a, a young girl looks to her dad in a sexual manner. Um, a young boy looks to his mom in a sexual manner. Yeah, but, well, that also, that this is also a problem with attachment theory, that there is this assumption that we raise our children the way chimpanzees do, which is where the, the, the child is always with the mother. But humans are collective breeders. We are allo parents, we have grandparents, we have aunts, we have friends of the family. A kid is not just exposed to his mother and father at all. And if they, it's really bad if they are. Right. So. It could be that uh, it's it's not it's the female presence or right. the male presence when you're young, but the female and male presence is a lot more than just your father and mother. Right. I mean, yeah. The way Freud talked about it, he was narcissistically and um, you know jumping the gun on some very firm ideas. You know, he didn't mm-hmm. he didn't state it as such. Um but you have to wonder if he knew what we know today if he would have modified things. Um but but at the time, right, the uh primary female uh 
person in a child's life was their mom because of the way that societies were set up back then, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe that's what he was talking about. But, uh, but the idea is the same in term and, and not, um, does it fit within Victorian mores, which is that one children are developing sexually, which mm-hmm. is um, abhorrent to a lot of people. And two, that uh, the children are actually looking at adults for information. They have an instinct to look towards adults for um, information around sexuality. Um, mm-hmm. And so though, you know, though, that I, one could argue that Freud had those tenants um, However, he got to them if it was completely misguided. And of course, you know, the broader context of the whole thing is rather silly. I mean, most people agree that Freud must have been attracted to his mom because um, (laughs) he was pretty adamant about it. Well, he he also, I think in a footnote somewhere says that we're naturally homosexuals and then we turn into heterosexuals later. Right. Yeah. The natural state is a homosexual state. Well, it was an immature state is, is, you know, the way he saw Mm -hmm. it. And to mature is to become heterosexual. Um, you know, so anyway, yeah. I, I'm, I'm drawing that connection. <laughs> I don't know if it makes sense. Yeah, well, and, and you know, that, that childhood affects our sexuality, I think, which is, uh, um, I guess, Freud's, uh, one of his, uh, his contributions is where this is at. So. Right, right. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Any last words, Yuval? No, I think uh, did uh pretty thorough job on this or maybe hopefully yeah well out there let us know what you think you can email me at contact at psychology in seattle.com you can email yuval lore uh at y-u-v-a-l-l-a-o-r at gmail.com correct that's right so why you it's the l-a and then the o uh there is no a followed by O doesn't show up in English too much, so or at all. Right. Just uh, it's like the, Laos. Country, the country of Laos. Yeah. So it's L A O R. Yeah. Yuval. La- how do you say your? How do you pronounce your last name? Lao. Lao. But that's uh, that's with an Israeli accent. You know? So you don't do the R. It's not a hard R at the end. Lao. La- like a. Uh, kind of no, it it can be a different accents, but yeah, it's. <laughs> uh, in in America, it's the American R. So yeah, Lao. which I'm not that good at. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my last name in Japan is pronounced Honda, uh-huh. and uh, so is that how the car is pronounced as well? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, but I we Americanize it yeah. for the sake of everyone. It's Honda. Yeah, I mean, my, uh, my parents chose Laor because they couldn't stay Lieberman for whatever reason, but now I can't go back to Lieberman because I I am very critical of the Liebermans in the, you know, in popular or, you know, Senator Lieberman. Oh, why couldn't your parents be Lieberman? Uh, My, uh, the cold war sent my dad to sell arms to Uganda in 68. Uh, And as an Israeli soldier representing Israel, he couldn't have, a diasporatic name. He needed to have a Hebrew name. Uh-huh. And so uh, on the condition, he could only go to Uganda if he would change his name to a Hebrew name. So him and my mom picked Lao, which means towards the light. But um, they, they, uh, they he wanted to go to Uganda. And it was interesting to go to Uganda for three months in 1968. So. You went with him? 
No, no, I wasn't born yet. Oh yeah, you weren't born yet. Yeah. Um, is that a a lot common last name in Israel? In Israel, yeah, it's not uncommon. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Well, uh, thanks for joining me, Yuval. As as always, it's fascinating, and yes. I always learn a lot, and I know our listeners do too. Great, thank you. Thanks for joining us out there, everyone. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. And make sure that you don't judge yourselves for what you've been imprinted with sexually or otherwise. 